We're going to continue now our uh, series on relationships. And today we just happen to be launching into the era of adolescency, which is from about 12, 13 to around about 35. Strictly it's about 19, but because of the change that's taking place in our society and the way our society is functioning now, they've actually changed the age of adolescence and made it long and extended. Adolescence has sort of like three stages that you go through and uh, the last stage takes you right up into the mid-30s. Seriously. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 6. The very, very ordinary verses... Ephesians chapter 6. And like I said last week, uh, oftentimes uh, when we read something very ordinary in Scripture and you just look at it very quickly and say, oh, that just says what it says. There's often a a, a lot deeper meanings and a lot more involved in that than, than just meets the eye initially. It says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise that it may go well with you and you may live long on the earth. If you don't honor them, they'll probably kill you. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. So last week we dealt with um, um, children obey your parents and fathers do not provoke your children to wrath. And that's all on the web now. It was put up last week. And can I encourage you that it's probably a good idea to go back over it and listen to it again. If you're thinking about becoming a parent and if you're thinking about what issues would I face in parenting, that's probably a very good sermon to go back and think about those things. Think about the things that would make young people or children angry if you exercise those and turn them around and, and ask the question, if I put that at a positive angle, if I'm involved in the proper sense, if I, if I put clear boundaries down and, and reinforce those boundaries, if I am you know, building cohesion in the family, if I'm actually putting um, you know, bonds of love down in the family, these things are going to actually produce goodness in the family, going to produce harmony in the family. There's lots and lots of things that you can do. Um, and as you've noticed... Um, Raising a family is quite complex. It's quite difficult, isn't it? And being part of a family as it's going up is very complex and difficult. And, yeah, we don't ever get it right. None of us ever get it all right. So don't ever think that, you know, because he's preaching the stuff, he's always got it right. Just sit down and talk to my kids as they were growing up. You'll find that it was very, very difficult at times, especially when things were in their teenage years, in the adolescent years. So today we want to actually take it and focus on the, on the scriptures that we didn't focus on last week, which are honouring. So as we looked at uh, the stages of life, we summarised these stages and I found out why the, the slides were stuffed up last week, but um, I fixed them up. So um, we, we've actually done the, the age of infancy and childhood and now we're actually dealing with adolescence which deals with the ideas of identity and individual in their adolescence is looking to find out who they are, their identity, who am I? And uh, that's when they can get some confusion taking place. 
they can have some real deep-seated confusion in discovering and, and, and establishing who they are. So there's, a, uh, there's a, almost like a, a tension between discovering your identity and becoming really confused about who you are in life. And so that we're going to actually look at identity and confusion and um, adolescence today. As we uh, noted last week, infancy is a stage, not a state. Everybody say that with me. Infancy is a stage, not a state. And what I mean by stage is it means you transition through infancy. You start off as a child. You start off sucking a a dummy. And as you grow up, you learn to put dummies away. And you move on in life. So infancy is something that you move through. Childhood is something that you move through. Adolescence is something that you move through as you are going through life. And if you don't successfully move through those areas of life, what it is is you just get older, but you don't get mature. So you maintain a lot of those idiosyncrasies of infancy that you should have got over and got out of, and you maintain them right up into old age. This week, how many, just a, just a show of hands, how many, you know, you started to see infancy all around you last week. You know, when we, we started looking at it, we looked at those things. What were those things? Dependency, refusal to take responsibility for actions. You know, how many people saw infancy in their lives, in your own life? How many people saw infancy in the lives of others? Yeah, it's, it's there, isn't it? And, and, uh, and how many of those people that you saw weren't infant any longer? <laughs> this is the problem. We have to transition. So are we getting more mature or are we just getting older? That's the question. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11... In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, it says, When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. I like that because Jesus says that being childlike is good, having that simple faith and that dependence and that trust in him, being like a child is a good thing, having faith in him is a good thing, but being childish is not a good thing. So we need to put away childish behavior. And Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15, the focus was really in that passage of scripture in, in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15 is about growing up. He says there that we speak the truth and love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. So God wants us to grow up, to become more and more mature like Jesus. Okay? Well, I want you to bow your heads now. I'm going to pray and ask Jesus to speak to your hearts. Father, we just sit here and we, we do this every Sunday and we come and we listen to your word. Father, but we are conscious, Lord, that the devil is around. He wants to take this word and remove it from our lives. We're conscious, Lord Jesus, that there are many things that can distract us today. There are many things that can tumble through our minds today, Lord, as we come to your word. Lord, we ask that you would put a shield about our minds and our hearts, Lord, that your word would be engrafted into our lives. Lord, that we would receive with meekness, the engrafted word, and that it would save us. Help us, Jesus, we pray in this regard. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Okay. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, 
which is the first commandment with promise. It says that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Now we know that we're going to focus on the honouring your father and mother today. Honouring is which commandment? What number of commandment is honouring? There's 10 commandments in Exodus 20. Which one is it? Number five. It's the fifth commandment. It's the first commandment that has to do with your personal relationship with other individuals. The first four have to do with your relationship with God. They are that there is one God and you should um, only have one God. The second one is that, uh, that you should make no graven images. The third one is that you should take, not take the Lord's name in vain. And the fourth one is that you should keep the Sabbath day holy as unto the Lord. And then it goes on to the fifth one. And the next six commandments have to do with your interpersonal relationship with individuals, human beings. And it starts off with your home life. Honor your father and mother. And he says, he gives you a promise right there. He says, if you do this, he says, you'll have a long life if you do this. So honoring your father and mother is in the commandments. It's one of the big commandments. It's not a small commandment. It's one of the ten commandments. So it really is the beginning of all relationship. And it's not just mum and dad. You know, it's not, okay, I have to honor my mum and dad, but I don't have to honor other people. You know, all of these commandments that are given are the source of, if you like, general commandments that go across. So when it says, you shall not murder somebody, it doesn't just mean that you don't kill somebody, but you can bash them up until they're just not dead yet. You know, it says about, Jesus says, it's, it's about hatred. He says, you don't have hatred in your heart, because if you hate somebody, you're a murderer. So it's everything from hatred, hating somebody, right through to killing somebody, is encompassed in that one commandment, that shall not murder. And then it says, you know, you should not um, commit adultery, you know, which is sexual immorality in marriage. I I can't have a sexual relationship with another woman outside of my married covenant with my wife. It's just forbidden. But there's more to that than just I can't do that. There's more to that. It's it's like all of the things that are encompassed in immorality are encompassed in that statement. It's about sexual immorality, whether it's before marriage, which is called fornication, or whether it's after marriage, or whether it's pornography, or whether it's lustful thinking, whatever. It, Jesus encompassed it, encompassed it again. He says, if you look to a woman to lust, you've committed. It's all those impure thoughts. It's all coming under that one banner. So when you've got the Ten Commandments, it's like they're the headwaters of a whole lot of other ideas underneath it. So when it says honoring your father and mother, it says, this is probably where it's going to start here. And it extends from there. So the fact that we know it's part of God's law, then we know that the law is right. Everybody say, honoring is right. And the fact that God had to put it in the commandments means that we don't want to do it. Okay? Don't think, we know it's right, but how many of you really want to do the right thing? I mean, you're like Paul in in, in Romans chapter 7. It goes something like this. The right that I know I should do is the thing that I don't do. The thing that I know I shouldn't do, that's the thing that I do. And then he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will free me from this body there? Like I'm chained to doing the wrong thing all the time. I know what the right thing is to do because the Lord tells me the right thing is to honor. But you know, the the thing that bugs me the most is when I get to honor people, the first thing I want to do is dishonor them. It's like it's right there. As soon as I know I ought to honor, 
I'm immediately passionate to dishonor. So it's not like this is irrelevant. You know, I like my mum, I love my mum, I love my dad, they're okay, you know. No, 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 no. This is about your interpersonal relationships with other people. It's a broad-based thing. It says, this is how you are with other people. You you need to honour other people, starting with your mum and dad. And there's no place where this becomes a real issue than in the place of adolescence, when you become a teenager. Well, why is that so? When we become teenagers, we start to ask ourselves some questions about who's in control of my life? Because I'm a big person now, and I can take control of my life. And of course, when when you're living with mum and dad, mum and dad always want to let you know, while you're in our house, you will do our rules. We are the ones who are in charge. Of course, it's a difficult thing, isn't it? Because you now are big enough to take control of your own life, and you're living in a house where somebody else is in control. So there's a tension between who will control who. And now you're getting big, and you can think smart, and you can talk fast, you want to debate who's in control. You want to discuss who's the boss. You want to talk about who you are and what you think and, and how it's going on. And so this becomes a really difficult here. A kid two years old can, no, I don't want to eat the food. You know, but you can say, you eat the food or something else is going to happen to you. And yes, mummy, I'll do what I'm told. Yeah, it's okay, but it was when they're a teenager, it becomes a little bit more forceful. Why? Because you're learning to become adult. You're not quite adult yet, but you're learning to become adult. And there's a tension because you're challenging the beliefs and the, and the controls of your parents. So this is the time of adolescence. It's a time of identity and a time of confusion. All those who are in adolescence now, you'll know that this is one of the most confusing times of your life. Seriously confusing. So much confusion at this time of life. Adolescence and identity. So how do we get a good identity? Well, what's our identity? Well, this identity is, well, what do I think as opposed to what my mother and my father thinks? Oh, my mum and my dad used to say, you've got to go to church on Sunday because we've done that all of our lives. We went to church on Sunday. And my father and my mother, your grandfather and their grandfathers went to church on Sunday, so you must go to church on Sunday. And their grandparent, their father and mother went to church on Sunday. And, and so we could go back four generations. Four generations could go back. They all went to church on Sunday. And my son, Nathan, he's not here today. He's not at church on Sunday. He has a baby that screamed all last night. We laugh. <laughs> It's coming back to roost. (laughs) Five generations for Nathan all went to church on Sunday. But you know what happened when I became a teenager? I discovered that church on Sunday was a choice that I made, not a choice that my parents made. And that worshipping God just didn't happen on Sundays because you could worship God anywhere. You could worship God on the toilet, was my argument. Becoming quite rational in these things, I could see that there was a door on the side that I could easily escape from. You know, I understand this about God. God is everywhere. You can't confine God into a building. That's right, son. You understand that about it. Well, I'm going down to the beach and I'm going to worship God on the beach on Sunday. See ya. Out of there. 
Well, what's that? That's adolescence, thinking differently, saying, you know what? I'll do what I think. I think this way. And what I feel is I don't want to feel like I have to be bound up by your tradition. It, I don't really feel that it's my tradition. I don't think that that's what I want to do. So I'm going to exercise my autonomy, my separation, my adultness, my little bit of adultness now, climb into my car and drive to the beach on Sunday instead of going to church. And you are powerless to stop me. You can't stop me. Because I will do what I will do. Apart from standing in front of the car and I'll run over you. But, uh, you there's a challenge of power that takes place. And, and then in that whole process, I'm developing beliefs. You notice, I believe that God is everywhere. I believe that you don't have to worship God in a building. I believe these are my convictions. They're my convictions that are taking me away from worshipping God. They're my convictions that I'm suitably developing to give me an edge outside of what God... That's what we do. They're my beliefs, not my parents' beliefs. I'm discovering my beliefs as an adolescent. That's what we do. And I'm discovering who I am. This is who I am. This is me. This is Mark. This is Mark Reed. Welcome to life. To know me, to see me, is to, to love me. It's Mark here. Hi, I'm Mark Reed. You're becoming an individual. That's what happens in adolescence. Now, we can help the process if we help our young people think. You don't help a young person to gain their identity by telling them what to think. Because they will discover what to think if they learn how to think. There's a distinct difference between telling a person what to think and teaching them how to think. That was profound. I'm surprised you're not all writing it down. Let me run it by you again. We are not telling you what to think. We're trying to teach you how to think so that when you are not near us anymore... You can think clearly about a situation and not fall into a hole and be convinced by somebody who's telling you what to think. When somebody tells you what to think, they're taking away your right to think. They're saying, don't question, don't ask any questions, just think these things. That's called indoctrination. Jesus never indoctrinated people. He gave them the ability and the choice to think a thing through. He would say, consider the lilies of the field. He would say, will you please think about this thing that is sitting in front of you? Will you operate your brain and use your brain and think about it? If you want to equip an adolescent, if you want to be a smart adolescent, you start to learn to think. Learn how to think, not learn, this is what my parents want me to think. But start to try and think about how to think about what's in front of you. You got that? What do I feel? Adolescents ask, what do I feel? You feel lots and lots of different things. And lots of those feelings are all sometimes really confused. Your body is changing. Yes, I know. Elliot. Stud. 
I remember when he was a boy, a weed, he used to walk around in the flowers and, you know, you could just see like a stick. But he stands there now like a, he's a man. He's got the body of a man. He can grow a beard better than me, probably. That's a bit scary. Because you see, you've got the body, but not the brain. No, seriously, that's the case. It's not, it's not finished being developed yet. Your body's kicked in there and it looks good, but your brain, and that's why we see so much problem with adolescence, because their brain is not developed quite, quite right yet. It's not finished developing. That's why adolescence is such a difficult thing, because the girls look like they are, whoa, look at that, they're blooming, but your head, you th- they're still playing with Dolls in their head, you know? They still think it's silly nonsense because they're not developing properly just yet. So their bodies and their young men's bodies, they look great, you know? But listen, their brain is still developing. It's not there yet. And this is where learning what you're feeling and how you're feeling and, and how to describe what you're feeling is really important as an adolescent, you know? I'm feeling all this. We used to sit down and, you know, love is forever. I've seen the man of my dreams. Man, look, you're the only one here who's here. You know, no, I got no, you're it. This is my daughter. We had a basic rule in our house. You don't date until you leave school. That means you don't date while you're at high school. You don't go out. You don't have boyfriends. You don't have anything to do with boys until you leave high school. Sounds like an archaic rule, doesn't it? It worked for us. So, you know, but the problem was when you sent them to school, you couldn't go and be with them at school the whole time when they're at school. And, of course, when they're at school, they're having a boyfriend when they're not meant to be having a boyfriend. <laughs> Something like that, you know. And so we'd go to school, you know, because they're having a, not you in particular, but your sister and your brother were having a little band day, and I think a... Were you playing in the band? You weren't in the band. You were too small, weren't you? And uh, so I went to school, and I was dressed up in my uh, gumboots up to here and my big um, checkered uh, sweater, you know, jumper thing. And I'd been pouring concrete, so I looked, and I was unshaven, so I looked very rough. So I went to school on that day that they were playing, in the, at a, and they were all playing there, and then Mark wrote in the back, he looked like something, a Neanderthal man. <laughs> This is the man, and all the other boys are like, that's Renee's father. It's true, he's mad, isn't he? This is the father who's, Renee, Renee got a phone call when she was a little girl. She had maybe grade nine, grade 10, a boy rang her from school. And as the, the phone rang, you know, Jenny says, it's a boy. <laughs> a boy. Poor Renee. This is the beginning of the end. You understand that? We have to see this before it begins. Otherwise, we can't stop it, you know? So she holds the phone out here. And I say something. A boy? I hate boys. Where is this boy? Renee, what's the boy doing on the phone? Just like that. About that loud. She comes to the phone and all she could hear was a reversing truck. <laughs> beep, beep, beep. 
The boys had run away. <laughs> ah, there's wisdom in my madness, hey. Uh, so, so when I went to school and dressed up like this, like something that had just come out of the woods, unshaven, one of the little boys, who'd just become a man, like he could shave a little bit, he decided he would man up and front up to me and shake my hand, you know, like contesting here, you know, teenage kid. I like, grabbed his hand like this. And I, <laughs> when I saw his eyeballs fall out onto his cheeks, I knew I'd reached enough tension. And his hair stood up like this, you know. That was enough. We made the point. So we got through the teenage years and they didn't get a boyfriend while they were at school. Because the confusion that comes when you get so emotionally wrapped up. It's love. I mean, it's, it's all love. I, 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 can't, I can't seem to think straight anymore, Daddy. It's just like, he didn't look at me today. He didn't look at me. He found somebody else. The emotions are so confused because your body's doing all this stuff with hormones and it's doing all this stuff. And so your emotions are all over the shop. And so understanding your emotions, understanding why you're feeling what you're feeling is really, really important. And that's what parents do. They sort of say, look, calm down. I know you're feeling brokenhearted. That's why I said don't have a boyfriend because, you know, you're not emotionally strong enough to handle the, the waves and the winds and the tosses that go on in emotion. You don't know what you believe. Do I believe that? You know, love is first sight, or do I believe? I don't even know what love is. Is it emotion? Is it something I feel, or is it something that, different to that? You, you haven't developed all of those beliefs yet. They're still latently there, trying to work them out, and and you don't know who you are, and you especially don't know who you are in God, which is really the place of our identity. If you really want to know who you really are in God. Or who you really are, you need to find out what God said you are because that's it. That's the eternal perspective. If you find out what your eternal perspective, you find out who you are. Because when you sit down and you think, well, I, this is who I am, you know, you could change next week. I could have started off said, I'm going to be an artist. You know why? Because I love painting pictures. So put the canvas up there and paint some pictures. You know, next week, next week something else comes along and I'm wanting to construct something. I'm not going to be an artist, I'm going to be a builder. And then next week, somebody sits down with me and wants to talk about a deep and meaningful thing that's happening in their life. They, you know what? I think I am a counselor. You know, all of this stuff that goes on there, we just don't know. It's just like we are so confused. So if we really want to confuse a young adult, if you want to be confused, just don't know how to think. Don't know what you're feeling. Don't ever start to think about what you're feeling. Don't know who to believe. And, I, and, and listen, it's not what to believe. It's who to believe. Because in the end of the exercise, no one was there for all of the facts. So if an atheist is standing in front of you and says, you know, this is the way the world created. It was sort of just evolving out of the matter that it's all sort of eternally there. And uh, then after a couple of lightning bulbs happened and, uh, you know, here we are, we are mutated into this uh, form of complexity, you know, from simplicity to complexity. You have to believe him because you weren't there. He wasn't there. He's just listened to somebody else who's sort of set up a story. And the question is, are you going to believe him or are you going to believe something else? 
You weren't there at creation. I wasn't there at creation when God got down and he started to fashion Adam out of a lump of clay. I wasn't there. But I, you know, I wasn't there at creation. I wasn't there at the origin. The choice is not what do I believe. The choice is who do I believe. And the choice of who do I believe has to do with trust. That's why parents, it's really important to maintain trust relationships with your children because it's not who do you it's not what do you believe it's who do i believe mum has never lied to me mum has never told me anything that's not true mum has always maintained the truth in every regard so when i don't know what's going on and i don't know what to believe and i don't know what's happening in my life i choose to believe her because she is consistent she wouldn't lie to me do you see it's not what do i believe it's who do i believe and then if I believe mum, I can believe Jesus. I can believe the word. I can believe what's going on. It's easier. It's not what do I believe. It's who do I believe. Do I believe what God says in his word? Do I believe who I am in Christ? Those are the issues. So now we're having a time and we're going to have a forum. A forum is a discussion. We're going to actually stop now and talk together. An acronym is a word that's made up of letters which helps you remember a lot of things. And if you're learning some, if you want to learn some schoolwork and you want to make it easy to remember all of it, put it in an acronym. An acronym, acronym who knows about acronyms? Who uses acronyms when, you, when you're learning? It's easy. You can, you can remember a whole body of information just by putting paragraphs under words. So look, we have an acronym here. It's called FLAME. These are the rules of forum. FLAME. The first letter, F, means freedom of expression, which means we want you all to express. Talk about it when you get an opportunity. The second letter is L. F, L. L is listening. We want you to listen to somebody who speaks. Don't talk while somebody else is talking, but try and listen to what they're saying. A, A is for acceptance. Acceptance doesn't mean that you have to agree with what they're saying, but you give them the respect to listen and accept them. And it means that you don't accuse them. So if Noel stands up and he says something that's really insightful, but you don't agree with it, you don't need to stand up and say, I completely disagree with that, and I point your finger at it. That's accusation. You don't need to do that. You just need to listen and accept that Noel's opinion has just been said. Okay? M stands for member participation. It means we can all get involved. And E stands for effective dealing with emotions, so that if somebody sees something that's really, really funny, laugh a little bit, but then control yourself. If somebody says something that's very, very hard and sad, cry a little bit, but then control yourself. And if it's very, very, and you get cross, be angry on the inside and sin not. Okay? You don't need to get upset about if somebody says something you don't agree. So that's a forum. So that's an acronym. If you take large bodies of information and you summarize them down into one word like that, you can remember whole lots of information. That's just for use for learning, learning skills. Okay? All right, Liz is going to lead us in this forum, and here are the questions for the forum. So we want to talk about honoring one another. And we've seen in Ephesians chapter 6 that we're meant to honour our mother and father. But it goes quite beyond just honouring our mother and father because in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, it says to honour all people. 
So if we look in the King James, it says honour all people. What does honouring people mean? So if you go to another version of the Bible, it uses a different word. If you go to the NIV, it says show proper respect to all people. So let's talk about this, this whole idea of honouring others. And as Mark was saying, it's kind of easier to dishonour people than to honour people. This is what I want you to think about now. Who is difficult to honour? You don't need to name people's names. Just talk about perhaps what they've done and the situation you're in where you found it really difficult to honour somebody and then tell me why. So who is difficult to honour in your life? Think about certain situations and then tell me why are certain people more difficult to honour, show proper respect to, than others? You have to raise your hand. When you're really and Mark will come running. Darren will come running. It's member participation. Oh, okay. Darren, I'm sure you do a great job. Okay. Do I need to warm you up with an example from my life? Okay. I thought about this question because I think it's only fair if I'm going to ask you a question that I think about how would I answer that question. And of course this week God gives me an example. And it reminded me, for me, I find it most difficult to honour somebody, to show respect to somebody when they've just shown me disrespect. So when someone in particular makes a false accusation about me, either directly to me in front of my face or even worse, when I hear about something someone said, sland is a yucky thing and it always comes back. When I hear about someone who said something about me which I believe is totally false and derogatory, when I next see that person... It's a challenge to honour that person because inside of me, good old flesh is saying, didn't like that and I want to even it up. You've been nasty to me, I want to be nasty to you. That's what happens when someone slanders me and I hear about it and then I next see that person or they make a false accusation to me and then run away. Mm. I find that difficult. I find it easier to dishonour that person and I have to come back to Jesus and say, Jesus, help me honour this person because you told me I need to honour all people. That's your way. Yeah. So I've started. I've done everything I can to warm you up. So who wants to tell us? Maria and Mandy. Okay. Um. Not particularly personally in a deep way, but I find it difficult, the concept of honouring parents that, in my mind, are not worthy of honour. And I know that's a horrible thing to say, but I think maybe we've all come across some in our life that I've I've thought to myself personally, if that was my parent, I'm not sure how I would be able to honour them. So that's always something that, yeah. Yeah. So it's difficult to respect someone and in particular respecting and honouring a parent who may be abusing children, for example. 
That's a difficult thing. Thanks, Maria. Mandy. I think it's um, difficult for me to honour someone um, when they don't um, meet my expectations. I have expectations and if they're not met, then it's really hard for me to honour that person. Yes, it's hard in the thick of disappointment, isn't it? When an expectation which... And even if we go back and say, did I have an unrealistic expectation? No, that was a realistic expectation, so we can't wiggle out of it that way. No, that was a realistic expectation, and now I'm sitting in disappointment. Now I still need to honour you. Yeah, that's hard. Thank you. All right, who else? Paddy. Difficult to honour somebody who's constantly lying who's not, you, you can't trust them to tell the truth and so you just don't honour them. That's difficult, isn't it? Because there's a sense of moral wrongness now. There's an injustice and that sparks within us. You know, we're made in the image of God. He's a just God. So when we sense an injustice like a lie has just been told by somebody, that's very difficult to honour that person and show them respect when we have a deep disrespect for lying. But there's a difference between what they do, which is lying, and we can disrespect the lying, and who they are as a person. So we're not actually being asked to honour and respect the lying. So this is a really great example of teasing apart the behaviour and the person. Imagine if God didn't tease that apart for us. Thank you. Anybody else want to talk about Jade? Uh, I find it difficult to honour and respect somebody who has dishonoured and disrespected somebody that I honour and respect. So somebody that's close to me. Yeah, that's hard, isn't it? That one's really hard. In fact, I think that one's probably even more difficult when they disrespect us. It's someone that we love that fires up something inside of us. And again, it's an injustice. And there's a protective thing going on there too, especially if it's somebody that's younger. Thank you. Oh, Louise definitely saw that hand. Don't want to miss you. I just wanted to say something about the social media side of things. Fantastic. It's time to move on. Perfect timing. Thank you, Louise. Yep. Because I had an experience. I'm a dinosaur, social media. I don't do it. not very good at it. But I had an experience where someone who does do it in the comfort of their own home, bedroom, wherever it was, and they feel free that they can say things that aren't true, make things up about people, and, um, and they don't realise the effect that it has. Even though I don't do social media, it came back to me because there is people out there who go, hang on, that's not right. That, you, you can't say that about someone. And um, in this instance, I didn't even know the person. And um, so you have to be careful when you are doing social media, your Facebook, and you're in your bedroom or in your bed or whatever, and you're comfortable and you think no one knows or no one can say anything to me, but you can get trapped in thinking that it's not going to affect anyone. You don't realise how you have to be so careful of what you say and, um, and how you express your own thoughts when they're your own thoughts and your own opinions and it's not necessarily the truth. 
So, and it, and it's you. hard to deal then with someone you who does that to you, and you've got to go. You get really, you know, frustrated. But I remember the, this stage. I thought, okay, Lord, I have to pray for this person because God says, "Pray for your enemies." So I did. Wow. Thank you. Did you want to speak, Mark? No, you look like no. you're bursting out of your seat. No. no. Wow, Louise, you've said so much there, and I thank you so much for describing a very real problem that we have right now because it's one thing for me to dishonour Heike in front of her. It's another thing for me to run around and come over here and talk to Maria and dishonour Heike. But, you know, it's a whole lot easier when you're comfortable at home now you're a long, long, long way away from me, Heike, and I'm feeling kind of confident in front of the computer now, and maybe my impulse control and my self-control is down because I'm comfortable, and it's just like you were saying, Louise, have a thought, yeah, don't, she said something nasty about me, off I go. So social media, there's a, it's a, there's a bigger temptation to dishonour people on the social media And you also said something else which I thought was um, incredibly important and that's, okay, so this is probably going to happen to a lot of us now that we're getting more and more involved in Facebook and watch out adolescents because I'm about to come and talk to you, so get that frontal lobe moving. If it does happen, what do you do? If someone's just dishonoured you on Facebook, it's oh so tempting to just dishonour them. But you took a higher road. You said, Jesus, the temptation is to dishonour, but you said to love your enemies and to pray for them. So there's a really practical, real way that we can respond to someone dishonouring us. Okay, you all need to thank Louise big time because she's just helped you out here because I was going to come and grab you people and bring you out the front and... And make sure that you answer this question. But I want you to now think about Facebook. All you youth. Twitter, Facebook. Anything. Any social networking that you use. Texting. um, Google. The whole lot. I want you to think about this question. What effects does social media have on honouring and dishonouring? And how could you be a positive influence there? So Louise has just modelled it. She said... This is what happens on social media. How could you be a positive influence? She's just given you a fantastic example. Okay, who wants to talk? Anyone that's less than 20. Where's Darren? Look, he's right there next to you. Okay, who wants to tell us? Because you guys know more about social networking than probably anyone else in the room. Elliot. Thank you, Elliot. Great. I love the way you volunteered then. That was great. Yeah. Wait, what's the question again? <laughs> let me read it for you. <laughs> let, me, let me give it to you in other words to simplify it. Can you tell me, Elliot, how it is we dishonour one another using social media? So you can give me an example like Louise did of yeah, how right. people dishonour. And then step two, that's step one. Then step two is how can you respond to that? in a positive way, and shine Jesus' light. Instead of just getting back into dishonouring, I'll dishonour you more, I'll use more swear words, I'll say something nastier or cleverer or smarter or wittier or I'll put a worse picture on, you enter the dishonouring spiral down into a dark, dark place. How can you be a light? 
Yeah. All right. So the bad thing, yep. uh, um, like subliminal Facebook posts. Where there's oh, well, n- what's yeah. a subliminal Facebook post? It's, well, I don't know if that's the right word. It's like a post where you're directing it at someone but making no like reference to their name but to the situation uh, and how you feel about them. It's very like – and a lot of people can see that and they can be like, oh, oh, is he talking about me kind of thing? Or like, yeah, but then the person knows who you're talking about. And that's the bad thing. The good thing, if there is one, I don't know, um, just sharing sharing parts of your life that that do glorify God. I know if you go through something, you can maybe post something about how God helped you through it. Or just a good thing is to just delete people who do associate with bad things because because you see on Facebook what everyone else is into. So you've got to separate yourself from them. Yeah, is that kind of fantastic? That was brilliant. You got a nice frontal lobe happening there. That was great. Um, this idea of it being implicit and vague, and um, making all sorts of innuendo, is is very um, effective. It's a very effective method to put someone down. So then is it me? Is it somebody else? And then generally speaking, a lot of people will know who you're being talking about. And that's a nasty way to dishonour somebody. So thank you for the example. And then I thought you did a brilliant job of saying what's a positive way you can make an influence. So I think I heard you say two things. One was that you can actually acknowledge what Jesus is doing in your life. So this is how you, we exalt Jesus. This is how we glorify Jesus. We say something great's happened in my life. Now either I can say, gee, aren't I good? Or I can say, gee, isn't Jesus good? Fantastic. And I think the second thing you said was really um, important too. You were saying you can be watching this. And use this for information about how to think. Mark was saying, don't, it's much more powerful to teach people how to think than what to think. So let's say it's George who's put on this nasty little, <clears throat> do you not like the name George? Oh, what name do you want me to use? You just went George like that. I thought that was an innuendo. It was very implicit, but I got it. <laughs> All right, let's just say George, I'm hanging with him, has put this message up here. You can use that to say, this, that tells me something about George. So we want to say, yes, this is a good way of how to think about what you're looking at. So instead of just looking at that and saying, oh, that's a bit nasty. I'm glad he didn't say that about me. You can say, oh, hold on a minute. That's just told me some important information about George. So rather than me saying, stay away from George as your mother, Elliot, stay away from George. He's not a nice boy. It's when you're looking at Facebook, look at the way they interact with one another. Make sense? Okay. Anybody else? One more young person and then I think we're going to um, continue on with the sermon. So one more young person. Esther, good yeah. on you, girl. All right. Uh, I would just want to comment on what Elliot says about Facebook because uh, what he says is true because normally I do that. If I can't really face you, uh, for example, if you've been slandering something about me and somebody come and told me, I'll post it on Facebook. And no, I'm not going to, I'm going to put your name like you said this. 
and it's really hard for me and I can't say anything positive about it because me it's really hard for me to honor anyone who said anything about me especially when it's not true if you know something you just come and say to my face brother and go and start slandering around I just can't take it I'll put it on Facebook and when I see you face to face it will be fire that's all I can say and there's nothing positive it's really hard to put anything positive on Facebook when things are not really good, especially these days. Okay, yeah. so I'm hear you, hearing you say that this is going on, this is real, we're it's not... Real. This not is real. real. Okay, yeah. so we're describing something that is actually going on here. This is real, this is a problem that uh, most people that use Facebook face. Especially me. Okay, so we're saying this is a problem, so we need to think about how we respond to this problem. Because while we can't control the problem, we can most definitely control our response to the problem. So you have a choice now. And if you're saying to me it's not possible to put positive things onto Facebook, there's not a, a way of actually dealing with it on Facebook, talk to me face to face, I think you've just come up with a better solution. I think you've said maybe I'll step away from Facebook and maybe I'll use a different method to interact with people. Um, not really. Okay. If that idea, if, that, if you don't like that idea, because you think, um, Liz, you've just totally wiped out my whole social life, <laughs> as if I'm going to do that, then stop and think again, what's another solution to this problem then? If you want to continue interacting on Facebook, but you see a problem there, you'd prefer to speak to people face-to-face, yeah, which I is what you've... If for, I prefer, for example, if I did something wrong or anything, just come and say it to me instead of you go and tell somebody else and me hearing from someone else and you didn't tell me. That's the thing that I don't really like. If I did something, come and say it. Then I may find a way to say sorry. If I did it, I would say sorry. And if I didn't, I can't say sorry because I didn't do anything. Okay. It's better if you said to me or go and say to someone else or go and post it on Facebook. Because if you post it on Facebook... I will even post something worse and it started to be social fight online and okay. we get worse thing. Okay, so I think what you're saying then is to resolve the situation, you've got to think of another way. Talk yeah. to the person, ring them, say let's get together, let's chat about this, let's deal with this face-to-face because maybe the ongoing backwards and forwards on Facebook is not the way to resolve it. Okay, thank you very much. You've done a great job. Thanks, young people, for interacting. We'll go back to the sermon. That's really interesting because, you know, um, if this is core to our relationships, it's the first command. Honour your mother and father. A broadness is honouring each other. If it's the first command that has to do with social interaction, the devil's found a way to get you to dishonour everybody every day in, a, in a horrible ways without actually feeling the bite of that. If, if, if that sort of thing happening in Facebook, you know, what I'll do is I'll assassinate you in Facebook, you know, and put it out there. He's found a way to actually snare you. It's interesting that, isn't it? Yeah, being... And one of the things I think I heard um, the, um, Elliot say too was he said, um, step away from it. He, did, he said, step away from it, didn't you, Elliot? Did you say that? Sometimes uh, stepping away from it would probably be a good thing, hey? Okay. 
So there are four things I want to talk about today about in terms of honouring. And I want you to write these things down and I'll just talk about those things with you just very briefly. Honouring, it's at the heart of God. So it's something that really is at the core of God. God is all about honouring. It's the core to spiritual life and relationships. It's the core, it's the centre of spiritual life and relationships with God. It requires the death of the self-life. The self-life is your own sense of self, myself. I'm going to do, this is what I think, this is what I believe, this is what I reckon is right and wrong, this is what I'm all about. It requires the death of the old self-life and it's the foundation of church life and ministry. Honouring is the foundation of church life and ministry. Okay, let's have a look at it being the heart of God. Now, In Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, we read a parable and, it, and Jesus gives us a parable. He's telling his secrets of the kingdom and he wants us to understand some of the wonderful secrets of the kingdom of God. And he says, there's a secret, he says. I'm going to tell you a story, he says. There's a kingdom of heaven, it's like treasure hidden in a field, he says, which a man found and hid for joy and over it. And he goes and he sells all that he has to go and buy the treasure that's in the field or go and buy the field so he can get the treasure. Now that story, it's a simple one. It's, it, it, it's a dual story that goes with the one that talks about the, the man who found a pearl of great price and he sold all that he had to go and buy that one pearl. But this parable, which is just before it, talks to us about Jesus' relationship to us. The field is the world. We are the treasure. And Jesus found treasure, something of value in the world, so that he would leave heaven, leave all his possession in heaven to come to earth to purchase us for himself. That's what this one talks about. The next one, we find the pearl of great price. Jesus is the pearl of great price. We give up all that we have to purchase that one pearl. So it's like, it's like two parables that say the same thing but have two different points of view. With that parable, we get an insight into how Jesus feels about us. So I know that we are not very good people. The Bible says that we are sinners. You know what a sinner is? Somebody who breaks all the commands of God. Somebody who breaks all the commands of God is a sinner. Somebody who breaks one of the commands of God is a sinner. We all sin and have fallen short of God's glory. We have all made mistakes and there's not one person here that is perfect, not one person that is right. Everybody has made mistakes, they've all sinned. And what this parable told is that while we were yet sinners, while we were worthless sinners, Jesus still saw value on us. He honored us. He could have quite, you know, let's think about God. Could God could do anything, really? I mean, he could just go like this. He could go, bang, and it's, it's all over. That's a dangerous thing now. I've got no watch, you know. All of a sudden, it's over. And he could wipe us all off. Uh, let's start again. Let's keep on doing that. Wipe everybody out and just keep on doing that until I get, and get the perfect couple who will never sin. But that's not God's plan. It's not his mind. He saw value in us, even though we were sinners. So don't tell me that you have to do something good to be of value. You don't have to do something good to be worthwhile. You don't have to be competent, adequate, and achieving to be a person of worth. You are a person of worth even if you don't... If you're not adequate, competent, and achieving, you're worth something because God says you're worth something. I'm worth something. I have value. And Jesus gives us honor 
by coming into this world to die for us, he honors us. That's it. It's at the heart of God. Even before you were born, even before you made mistakes, when you made mistakes, he still saw you, he still loved you, and he still made the decision to come to you. It's at the heart of God because Jesus said when he came here, but I say to you, and love your enemies and do good to those who hate, hate you. And this is what we're talking about. You know, my enemy, if you're going to be my enemy, you'll be the one who says something nasty about me that's not true, and I'm finding it really hard to like you. I, I heard some individuals say, I don't love my enemies. I hate my enemies. And that's very easy. That's, that's like, if you do good to me, I will love you. If you do bad to me, I will hurt you. It's as simple as that. That's not noble. That's not Christian. That's normal. That's what's happening in the world today. People do bad, they get bad done to them. It's not a result of reciprocity. Now, the word reciprocity, everybody say reciprocity. It's hard to say, isn't it? Reciprocity. It means if you do nice things to me, I'll do nice things to you. Yeah. It means, you know, let's do things together. Nice, you know. You be kind to me and I'll be kind to you. That means I can honor you. I can honor you if you're nice to me. You know, I'm always, it's always easy to be nice to people who are nice to you. It's, all, it's easy to love somebody who loves you. And we, we actually look for people on, on uh, social networking and we look for people to gather around us who like us because we like our fan base. We like our fan base to be there. We stand in front of our fan base. We give them all a wave. Hey, and all our fans go, hey, back in there. That's good. We just surround ourselves with people who like us. And we keep away from people who don't because we can't deal with that. But honoring deals with that. Honoring is God's way. It's at the heart of God to deal with people who hate you, even your enemies. The word love is an interesting word because the word love is the agape word for love. And the word love, agape love, is not an emotional love, which means you have to feel warmth towards somebody who doesn't. I don't feel warm to you. You just said something nasty to me. I do not feel warm to you. In fact, I'm angry at you. I feel anger to you, not warmth toward you. But I can still honor that person, even though I'm angry at that person. And you know how I can honor that person? I can love them. It's a choice. And the word love, agape, is a choice. I can choose to love them. That means I can choose to honor them. The word agape means to esteem, to prize, to honor an individual. In spite of that individual. It's like Jesus honored us and loved us in spite of what we did. We might have told lies. We might have blasphemed God. We might have not gone to church on Sunday. We might have not done the right thing. We might have done all, broken all the rules. And yet God honors us by loving us. He prizes us by showing his love for us that he would die for us. It's at the heart of God, this honoring. Honoring is at the heart of Jesus. It's the heart of God to honor human beings. Amazing, really. The second thing is it's core to spiritual life and relationships. It's at the core of what we're all about the two greatest commandments are found in matthew chapter 22 verses 36 to 39 and you read these words it says teacher uh, a, a young man came to jesus says what's the greatest commandment of the in the law and and 
And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And so what he was saying there, if you want to summarize up all the law that's in the Old Testament, everything that the prophets were saying, he says you can sum it up in these two things. He says you honor God, love God, respect God, and worship God with everything that's in you. He says, and the second thing you've got to do is you've got to honor, respect, and love individuals, other individuals, as you honor and respect yourself. That's a tall order, isn't it? He said, but your whole of your spiritual life and the whole of your social life, interaction with other people, premises on that ability to love and honor. If you can't love and honor God, you're not going to be able to love and honor people. And don't think you can, oh, I can love and honor God and I just can't love and honor people. No, no, no. You can't love God, the Bible says in 1 John, and say you hate your brother. That's not consistent with Scripture. You have to love God and love your fellow man. You have to honor God and honor your fellow man. It's consistent to spiritual life. If you don't do that, there's no spiritual life. You understand what I'm saying? If you can't do that, you might be religious and you might be doing religious things, but there's no spiritual life because spiritual life premises about the attitude that we have inside towards God and the attitudes we have towards other people. Now, those are not able to be conjured up. You can't just sit there and say, oh, I'm going to love God. Squeeze out that love there. Love you, God. You have to come to God and say, God, I'm destined. I cannot love. I have no ability to love. I can't love my fellow man. I can't love that person who says horrible things to me. I can't love that person who's, who, who dissed me in, in public. I can't love that person who slandered me. I can't love that person who is my enemy. And I find it very difficult to love you because I see injustice and I see this and I see that and I find it hard to... I'm coming to you not because I can love you. I'm coming to you because I can't love you and I'm asking you, fill me with love. Fill me with honor. And God will do that. He will pour his love into your heart by the Holy Spirit. He says in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, he says, God will pour his love into you by the Holy Spirit. He'll give you the ability to honor him and to honor others. This is not something that you can manufacture in your flesh. It's something that comes from God. So the third thing, it requires the death of the self-life. Now, some people have described the self-life as like a black dog and a white dog. You know, like inside of us, there's two dogs. There's the black dog and there's the white dog. And they're fighting each other, <laughs> fighting each other all the time. And you ask, which dog wins? The one I feed the most. If I feed the black dog, it fights the white dog and the black dog wins. If I feed the white dog, it, it gets stronger and it, it, it fights the... Listen. This is not about black and white dogs inside. This is about having Jesus on the inside or having yourself on the inside and doing what he said. It's not like there's a part of us that is okay to leave it there, just don't feed it as much. No, there's only meant to be one on the inside, not two, just one. So if there's two on the inside, one has got to die because there's only got to be one on the inside. Put your finger up like that. Only one on the inside. How many people feel they've got two? 
How many people feel that they got two? It's okay to feel you got two. How many people live with one? Which means you have to do something with the other one. You might feel you have two, but if you feel you have two, you've got to do something with the second one. And what do you have to do with the second one? You have to put it to death. So that's what the scripture says. Now, how did this whole idea of being so self-aware come? Now, in the past, we had, and and this is very, we've done this before, we've had a pre-modern world. This is up to the, say, 1600s. Everybody, there was nothing else. There was no Darwinism. There was no, everything was God. As far as we believe, God was the center of the whole thing. And that everything, you could get to know God through looking at creation. You could get to know God through reading the revelation that came through us, which is the word of God. And you could discover truth through your knowledge of God. That was the old way. That's the old way. Things changed though. And around about 1650, some of the monks got together and they started talking with the Greek philosophers of the day and they started you know, stretching their brains and they started to reason. So they pushed God out of the picture and they started this reasoning process. And so that's where our science began. It began with monks so they started to think about how life is. They started to reason how life is. You know, or what is science all about? It's like, well, let's test and prove things. And we learned a lot of things. You know, look at where we are today. You drove here in a car. You, fly, you can fly on a plane. There's lots of discoveries that have happened because people have discovered things by reasoning, by science. But there's some things that we didn't discover. We didn't discover how to live in harmony because we created bombs that would kill everybody. And so about 1950, and some of you were born at 1950. I wasn't. I was born in 1957. But my mum and dad were born in 1950. About 1950, there's this thing that happened through the Western world. And that was like the young people, about the, the age of your young people now, these young people, they started to protest about the world, the modern world. They said, we should be brought into a place, a utopic, a better place. Like we should have heaven on earth by now. We know enough to be able to, to create a heaven on earth. And you know what was happening? We were getting war, more war, weapons of mass destruction. It was becoming worse and worse and worse. And so they started to protest and they became known as hippies. You've seen the hippies, all that fashion comes back, cheesecloth, you know, the stitching on the side of the jeans and the flower power. Smoking drugs, alcohol, free sex, Woodstock, all of that stuff started taking place. Some of you might not even know it. But it was that era of time where everybody was rebelling against this modern world. And that was called postmodernism. So what happened in postmodernism, rather than science being the center, what happened with postmodernism, man became the center. We became the center. Individuals. Myself. I am the center. You know, I don't believe what science is saying anymore. We push science to the side. We saw governments use science. Governments use science just to manipulate our thinking. They're not really caring about us. They're just using us and manipulating our thinking. And then you get books by uh, George Orwell, about 1984, who's read that book? Animal Farm, who's read that book? It's all about control, big brother controlling, you know, and what's, where we live in today in our society today. They're listening, they're watching, they're, they're going to control everything. You know, that's what's happening. That's what we were looking at. That's what we were saying. We have a basic distrust for governments now. So we push that. There. And, you know, the only thing we trust is ourselves. So we live in an era where you, yourself, is the center of the whole world. And everything in media is telling you, you, the most important person in the world. This is you. You're the most important person in the world. 
You are the center of the whole world. You are the center of the universe. What you think and what you feel, what you experience is true. I'm not telling anybody what they're saying is not true. We say, I just know what I believe. It's true for me. It's true for me. Don't you tell me what you think because I know what I think. It's true for me. I've become the center of the whole world. That's where we are today. And the Bible tells us quite clearly. It says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1, Know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Perilous means really dangerous and difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemous, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, High-minded, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And that really describes where we live in in our society today. That describes it in a really clear sense. So today, and they have a little picture there of a girl kissing herself. That's what you see in, in a lot of social media. It's called narcissism, self-love. It's right at the core of our society. You just look at the Facebook pages and see how many pictures you've posted of yourself. I'm serious. What's it telling us? Well, I am, in, I am embracing self. Why? Because I love self. Do I look good now? What about now? I might not stand there. I must suck my stomach in So what are we doing? I mean, we can laugh about it, but what, what are we doing? This is, this is it. Self is the center. This is what is happening. Self has been... This is what our society has done. You have become the center of the whole universe. You demand to be in control. So when things are not the way that you very much like them to be, when things are not what you want, you know, it's going to be very difficult for you to maintain happy. While if Lily is, is going through life and things are not exactly how she wants them to be, what's going to happen? Is she going to get upset? Is she going to tell you what she really thinks? Well, if, 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 if um, I'm moving somewhere else now and having a brain freeze with all these young people's faces, if Nathan is sitting there and things are not the light way things Nathan wants them to be, what happens? What really happens? How, how does he deal with his frustration? How does Esther deal with her frustration when things are not what she wants them to be? If, if things are not the way she wants them to be, what happens? Who's in com- control here? This is what happens. We are the center and we've got to be in control. If somebody does something and it puts us out of control, we are not happy about that. We've got to get control back. It's all about control. And why is there so much fighting amongst you? There's like two-year-olds all wrestling for control. It's my toy. It's my toy. It's my toy. Give it back to me. It's my toy. It's my toy. It's my toy. I mean, slow this thing down. We haven't transitioned out of that two-year-old state. We're still there, locked in there. And we think that we know enough to define what's right and wrong. So when I'm talking to you and, and when your parents talk to you and other people talk to you, when people say if we're locked into that state and somebody says, you know, there's a different way, you know, go, we, we, we contest it, we, we argue with it because we're the ones who would define whether 
sex before marriage is right or not. Don't you tell me what you think about sex before marriage. If I want to have sex out of sight of marriage, I'll have sex out of it. Don't you put your morality on me. And if I want to drink, I'll drink. If, don't you tell me that the Christian shouldn't drink alcohol. I'll drink if I want to drink, you know. Don't you tell me, give your values and your morals on me. I've got my own values. I'll smoke if I want to smoke. I'll do what I want to do. I'll watch if I want to watch. Don't you tell me not to do Facebook. I'll decide whether it's right or wrong. Not you. So we're defining. We are defining the rights and wrong. Ourselves. We say, these are right. This is wrong. This is right. And mum and dad said something. No, I don't listen. I'll define whether, you know, they said, you're being over the top. Don't talk to boys on the phone. You're being over the top. I'll define what's right or wrong. I'll sneak around the back and I'll talk somewhere else. We set it up. And then when we get caught, when something goes wrong, we stand there and we we put our chin out and we justify it. It's because, and we point the finger, you won't let, it's your fault now. You won't let me do what I want to do and because you won't let me do what I want to do. That's why I am doing this because you are so mean to me. And we justify ourselves. That's self-life. All the way through. I want to be in the center. I want to be in control. I want to define what's right and wrong for my own life. Don't you tell me anything. And, for, and when I get stuck, I'm going to justify what I'm doing. That's self-life. And that's the life that stuffs us up completely. You know, we've got to have more than ever have Jesus rule. Jesus has got to be the center of our lives. The core of us is Jesus. Not two dogs fighting. The core of us is Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. Then I've got to let Jesus by his Holy Spirit control my life. It's not what I want to do. It's what Jesus wants me to do. And while I want to go down to the beach and I got to get down and be honest with Jesus, Jesus, what do my, my son came to me one day and he says, Dad, so-and-so has asked me to go and do a uh, triathlon on a Sunday. Well, you know, well, we're fifth generation's church is Sunday. You know, I, I use the argument, you can worship God. Oh, I think he's going to do the same with me now like I did to my father. He's going to do the same to me now. So I, I thought, well, I should tell him, you know, you've got to be in church. And if you're not in church, I'm going to come down on you like a 40. But you're not going. In the, but, you know, he is now maybe 13. And I'm thinking to myself, he's got to get to God. He's got to have Jesus in the center. And not me telling him what to do. He's got to have Jesus telling him. I said, why don't you go and ask Jesus what he wants you to do, whether he wants you to go and do that. I'm not going to tell you whether it's right or wrong. I'm not going to tell you one of those things. But you go and ask Jesus what he wants. And I'm telling you, Jesus, you better talk to him. It's your kid. I don't know what is going on here now. You, know, you give me these children, a gift from God. You look after him now. I'm just to take my hand off that one completely. So Jesus goes, he goes into the room with Jesus. He sitting there for a little while, and then he comes out and he looks at me with a beaming face. Oh, we're in danger here, aren't we? Jesus told me. <laughs> what did he tell you, son? He told me that I should be in church on Sunday. I said, and how did he tell you that? I prayed and asked Jesus, I want to know what to do. So he was sincere. He said, I went to my Bible and I opened up my Bible. 
And I put my eyes down. And the words that came back to me immediately told me I was to be in church. That was it. I didn't have to say anything. Why? Jesus was the one who was defining what was right and wrong. You know what, what, what happens? This is what we do. We decide what's right and wrong. We justify it to ourselves. And then we go to Jesus and say, that's why I'm doing it. You know, you are bought with a price. God owns you. It's, it, it, you are not your own. You belong to him. So you don't really have a choice in the matter. There's only one choice, and that's to do what he says. And so you've got to get to him and say, Jesus, I want to do the wrong thing. I want to do what I want to do. But I'm going to be honest with you, Jesus. I want to do the wrong thing, but you tell me. If you don't want me to do that, you tell me what the right thing is to do. And get down and pray. And then open the Bible, and he will speak to you. He's speaking to you, and he'll define what's right and wrong. And then he'll justify you. The kids will say to you, What? You're not coming out on the... Why wouldn't you? Some sort of jerk or something. Why are you so over the top with your Christianity? You have to be in church every Sunday. You can't even take one Sunday off and, and have a look. What are you? What are you really thinking? And they get to persecute you because you want to have faith in Jesus. Don't worry. Jesus will justify it. He will make it all right in the end. He will fix it up. And that's where we are. There's only one thing that you can do with the self-life, and they can't sort of keep it there in a box. You have to put it to death. Paul says it this way. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You've got to put the self-rule, the self-wanting to be in control, the self-defining what's right and wrong, and you've got to put in your justifications of yourself. You've got to put it all in a box, and then you've got to put it in the fire and burn it. Get rid of it. doesn't work. You will never discover your life in God while it's around. You have to get rid of it so that Jesus can shine in you. You can't have two dogs. You can only have one. So if you've got your self-life in there, guess what? Jesus is not showing. If you've got Jesus in there, the flesh is not going to be showing. But finally, it's the foundation of church life and ministry. It, it's, it's what happens in church. Church life and ministry is all about it. The Galatians 3, chapter 28, it says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, Paul's telling the Galatians, there's neither bond nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ. I want you to get this. There's a breakdown of distinctions between people. He says there's no Greek nor Jew. That means there's no racial difference between Jerome and I, we are one in Christ. There is no difference. It, it, it doesn't wash with God and say, oh, but we, we are Africans, therefore that's what we do. Or, oh, look, I, I'm not an African, therefore I do this. And as though that, that God says, no, no, there's no, you know, there's no racial difference. You're all one. We are all, every nation under heaven is just one in Jesus. There's no bond nor free. You know, a bond person was a slave. He was bound and was like an employee. He wasn't free to do himself. But the, the freed man, he, was, he had some money. You know, he was free now. They usually pay for their freedom, you know. So it talks about economic. I have money, therefore it's all right for me to do that. I don't have money, therefore. I, you know, the reason I steal is because I don't have money. 
No, 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 no. None of that washes with God. There's no difference economically with us. There's no difference when it comes to gender. I'm a girl. I'm a boy. There's no difference. You all got it the same. You're all one. And he goes even further when he goes to Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. He says, there's no Cynthia or uncircumcised or circumcised, just cultural. He says, this, this is a cultural thing. Circumcision was a cultural thing. It was a Jewish cultural thing. And there was the uncircumcised, which were not Jews. There's no cultural difference here. There's no barbarian or Cynthian. And that's a social thing because barbarians and Cynthians were really uncivilized people. And the Romans and the Greeks were civilized. The Jews were civilized, but barbarians and Thinthians, they were not. They were the lowest of low. They were uncouth, uncivilized. So it has a social idea. So you've got people who have got some breeding and then people who come from another place who don't care. Look, Jesus says, look, whether you've got wealth or you don't have wealth, he says you're all one in Christ. Now, how's this to do with honoring? Well, if there's no stigma and there's no barriers and there's no culture, you can't honor one above another. You can't lift one up and put another one down. He says, if you're all one, he says, then he says, put on, therefore, as elect of God's holy and beloved bowels of mercy. They've got God's compassion, he says, kindness and humility of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a quarrel against anyone... Forgive just as Christ forgave you. Above all these things, put on love. And so he's saying there's this honoring one another, which is there right at the base of all of our church life. It's there. We're all one. There's no, there's no difference anywhere. There's, any, there's no difference within any of us here. We're all one in Christ. Therefore, honor one another, honor one another, honor one another. Don't sit down and say, well, we're more honorable than others. You know, in one of the churches there in James, we had rich man coming in and, oh, boy, this man, he came in and he had gold all over him, you know, and he walked like this and there was gold flashing everywhere he walks. And they all looked at him and said, oh, look at this man. Boy, his offering would be good. And they come, he comes into the church and they come this way. Here's a special seat at the front. We're going to put him down there, you know, and make him feel really good. A special seat just for the man with the money. And then this guy comes in and he's walking in and he's just come off the street. He's dragging his feet. He's got, he's got no shoes on. His toenails are that long. You know, he's, he's been smoking. He's got nicotine stain all over his fingers and he smells like vomit and urine all together. And he walks into the house. Shall we put him next to this man? Nah. Where shall we put him, mister? At the back. By the window which is open. Yeah, well, he says, you know what you've just done? You've just dishonored Jesus because you showed partiality, the sin of partiality. You thought that money made a difference, how you should respond to someone. This is why honoring is the very beginning of church life. He says, look at the connection, but you have dishonored the poor man. Dishonored. Honoring, dishonoring. You've dishonored the poor man because you made a difference. You treat a rich man different than you treat a poor man. It says you should love your neighbor as yourself. There's a connection straight away with the love. Honoring is loving. God's love expressed. Dishonoring is not loving in God's way. The Bible says, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. 
to value, to fix. The word honor means to value, to fix a price, to revere, to esteem. And in First Timothy, uh, so First Peter chapter two verse seventeen is the scripture that Liz read out before. Honor all persons, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. Finally, in Philippians chapter two verse one to five, I want you to read this. It says, therefore. If there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love and being one accord in one mind. He says, and now listen to this. He says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. How different and difficult is that? in our society remember we have put self in the center we're in the middle and you you mean take yourself out and put somebody else in the center that's better than you well that's just foreign to our world lowliness of mind is this word to have a humble opinion of oneself i like the next one it's a deep sense of one's moral littleness i like that a deep sense of one's moral littleness. Everybody say that because I like it so much. A deep sense of one's moral littleness. So let's put our morality on the table and let's see how moral we are, shall we? So we put the morality of, of Liz on the table and we say, well, look at that. I'll put it right up there on the pedestal. Look at that. Liz's morality. We stand around, and this is scriptural. This is, this is scriptural. Now we honor one another. So we're looking at this, and we look at her morality, and we, we are in awe at her morality. You know, that is completely scriptural. That's honoring somebody above yourself. So don't put me on a pedestal. Thank you, Jesus. And that's completely scriptural. We put her on there and we say, okay, that's right. But what does Liz do? Liz takes herself off the center. She's consumed with her own moral littleness and she places somebody else up but you know when we place people on a pedestal you know what we discover they fall off because it's rickety so what we need to do is just leave the pedestal for jesus and recognize that we can trust one another if jesus is in the center of our lives but this being captivated by our moral littleness, it stops away this pride, this sense of, you know who I am? Do you know who I am? You ever heard somebody say that? Do you know who you're talking to? Do you know who I am? Have you heard somebody say that to you? Have you heard that? Have you, have you ever said that to anybody? Have you said, do you know who I am? Do you know who you're talking to? Why does that make any difference? <laughs> there was a... There was a Carlos is not here, but there was a minister who came through, a guy who came through, was a, he preached to thousands and thousands of people. And, and, and we knew who he was. And, and Carlos knew who he was. And he came past Carlos's place, and Carlos was, uh, was coming out there. And this guy came out to him and says, uh, Do you know who I am? 
No. Oh, we knew who he was. You know, he, he was this famous me- preacher that had just come through town, and he's getting, and he was wanting to know that if you knew who he was, which is a good indication of his moral littleness. Seriously, it's not about you. It's not about what what you think you got. It's about Jesus and about putting Jesus in the center. And what we've got to do is we've got to recognize that Jesus is in everybody. Seriously, now. We just experienced something. Did you see Jesus walk in with his phone, talking to someone? Did you see Jesus walk out? Did you see that? Because if you didn't see Jesus, you're not looking properly. I said, well, why do we have people who are a little bit different? Let me tell you why. Because in everyone that is different, Jesus somehow mystically resides. And when you dishonor that person, you dishonor Jesus. They may dishonor you. They may dishonor us. But when you dishonor them, you dishonor Jesus. Because he is present with them. You see, we've got to get out of this thing where people have to jump through our hoops and do the things that we expect them to do and get into the frame of mind that Jesus wants us to get. It's time to honor one another. This world is full of dishonor. We can keep on going, going, and going, but it's like we have to stop somewhere and say, you know what? This, it's important to honor Jesus. Is present right there. Look, the sheep and the goats came to Jesus and Jesus was standing there and he said to this, you know, come in my sheep. And they said, well, why are we sheep? And the other one goes, he says, well, when I was thirsty, when I was hungry, when I was a stranger, when I was naked, when I was sick, when I was in prison, he said, you went the extra mile. You saw me there and you, you came to me and you fed me and you clothed me and you, you clothed my goldness you gave me a warm blanket and a sleeping bag you gave me something to eat you know when i was sick you you gave me a panadol you looked after me you you did something to to help me and the king said yes i was there in that person i was there in that person when you ministered to that person i was present i was watching i was looking for honoring in it's the core of our christian work it's the core of our ministry honoring the unhonorable Honoring the disgusting, loving the unloving. It's the core of what Jesus was all about. And at judgment day, he's going to say, and when you didn't do it to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. Because I was present there when you turned your eye and you looked and you said something snarl and something bad and you said something rude about that person. I was there. I was there in the person. I was looking for honoring. And you couldn't honor them. God sends us little tests all the time. Little tests along the way. He's not looking to make us fall, but he's looking to see how we will respond in the situation. He's looking to see if we're going to stand up and be what God wants us to be. So we have little tests all the way coming through. People that we just find it difficult to get along with. People who rub us up the wrong way all the time. And he says, honor, honor, honor. How on earth do you think that you can learn to honor? Then he places you in a pool of people that you want to dishonor. And you will rise up. When the flood comes in of people that you think you can just... I work with people who I don't 
honor their opinions and I don't honor their views and I don't honor their behavior. But I work with people who I think need to hear about Jesus and I honor them not because of what they do and what they believe, because Jesus tells me to honor them. Even though they're not worthy of honor, I remember that I was not worthy of honor. And he showed me great honor. So what we learned today is honoring is at the core of our lives. It's at the heart of God. It's at the core of spiritual life and relationship. It requires the death of the self-life. And it's the foundation of the church life and ministry. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you'd help us to honor. Lord, we know it's easy in these days to dishonor because we have become so equipped at being dishonorable. The society has modeled it. Our society has shown it over and over again through media. It has elevated it. It has lifted it up and made it look as though it's a skill to be dishonoring of others. Father, help us to live differently to this world, we pray. Teach us to honor one another, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Now, I really want to smash this home. And before this comes up, are you going to show them that uh, DVD? Yep. We've got a little thing. Do you think that you learn anything today? Okay. Do you think? Well, I want you to smash it home. An acronym. An acronym is a word. It's made up of letters, which gives you a whole lot of information. I'm going to hand this out as Liz is coming up to set this other thing up. And I want you to take one of these and smash this message home. And there it is there. What are you going to stop doing? You're going to stop doing something. You might think, you know, I'm giving tit for tat on Facebook. I'm going to stop that. I'm not, when somebody says something nasty to me, I'm not going to reply. I'm going to go to ground. I'm not going to do that anymore. I, I mean, I, I learned something. What are you going to modify? What are you going to modify in your life that, you know, that needs to be changed? There's some things that you're doing that need to stop, maybe change. Now let's change some stuff. What are you going to modify? What are you going to activate? You're going to start doing something different now. You know, once upon a time you didn't do something, but you're going to do something now. You're going to start doing something different. What would you do something now? What do you start doing something? You're going to activate something. You're going to start doing something on a regular basis. How are you going to help somebody in this exercise? So there's a little card here. This is just for you to take home and just to fill out. And on the end of the inside, it's got those four questions. If you're serious about learning to do this, you would take action to smash this message home into your head. Now, when I'm working, I'm using a hammer. And if I want to put a piece of nail into the hammer, sorry, if I want to put the nail into the timber, I use the hammer. (laughs) That's it. Uh, who wants to give those out for me? If you want one of those, take them. I usually hit it a couple of times, smash it into that timber. So I hit it, bang. Hit it again, bang. And after about three or four swipes, it'll go into the timber. If it's, if it's hardwood, I'll probably have to drill a hole first before I can nail it because it's hard is so wood, the wood is so hard. Hard is so wood. <laughs> Don't laugh at me. 
We're transitioning. We're all transitioning. <laughs> it was funny, was it? Okay. Ha, 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 ha. Let's see laughter. Okay. So if you're serious about doing this, you need to stop and you need to smash this thing home more and more. You need to hit it again, hit it again, and hit it again. If you're just fooling around, you're just playing a game here, you're just here because the chicks or here because the guys, or you're just, you know, you're just not here for any other reason apart from just doing a religious thing, don't bother to take one with you. This is just for those people who believe that speaking and hearing the Word of God produces change. Think about it. Write something down. Take yourself and say, do something about this. Smash this home into your life so that it changes your view of life. Amen? Okay. God bless you.